It is 118 days until the Vancouver municipal elections. This is the Camby Report. I'm Matthew Naylor. I'm Ian Bushfield. And I'm Patrick Meehan. And what a week it has been. Maybe a little quieter than uh, some of the ragers from earlier in the spring, but still, you know, relatively interesting and at times hilarious. We're going to be taking you on a bit of a road trip today. We're going to be leaving the confines of Vancouver proper and heading on down over the rickety Patello Bridge. The rickety Patello Bridge and not the toll-free Portman Bridge, which should not be toll-free, uh, into Surrey. <laughs> Uh, it should be noted, I grew up in Surrey, and uh, I still have a lot of fondness for my hometown. We were thinking of having a guest on today's show, and one of the things that came up is just barriers to access, perhaps. Like, we record in Kitsilano in my apartment, and so that's not always convenient for anyone. And we're thinking of ways to make it a bit easier. We have the ability and technology to call people in, so we'll probably be doing that in the future and finding ways to make sure that we can hear voices, because we get tired of the sound of the three of us talking, even though... Well, Some and, listeners aren't. And the three of us have certain lenses that we can apply, but we, we definitely have blinders for areas and topics and issues that uh, are not, that don't overlap with us. And so it's important to get all voices heard, right? Right. Speaking of the voices, Surrey has a number of people vying for the top job mayor of that well, municipality. Well, uh, they might. They, they might have a couple people vying. There might actually be a whole other uh, vehicle for voice in Proudly Surrey. But we'll cover that then. We're also going to be checking in with Kettle Boffo, the affordable housing development. Some of the events of the week past, including a platform meeting and some rumors and questions around NPA councillors. And take a look at the coming weeks when Green and Vision parties will be uh, holding their nomination votes. And finally, because of course we are going to cover this, the Way Young mayoral run announcement tweet storm it will be at the very end you will have to wait best for last save the best for last it is our dessert so surrey yeah so surrey is uh british columbia's second city in terms of population there's 517,000 people there which if you can compa- compare that to vancouver with 630,000 people uh it is starting surrey is starting to get to that point of, of sort of reaching vancouver for population there's always sort of this talk that occurs in vancouver in surrey about when uh, the, the population will overlaps or eclipse Vancouver's. And I think in a lot of ways, Surrey pegs itself against Vancouver and compares itself against Vancouver a lot. But the stat that I heard a number of years ago, I don't know if it's still true today, but the stat a number of years ago was that uh, one in three residents of Surrey were under the age of 20, which is shows you just how young Surrey is. Uh, and that's why Surrey changed its name recently to uh, The Future Lives Here. from The, the motto. Former, the motto, yeah, from the former uh, City of Parks. Uh, Surrey is a very huge landmass, 316 square kilometers compared to Vancouver's 115. And because of that, Surrey is really just a collection of town centers, as they're called. There are six town centers, and you, you've probably heard of a few of them. There's, you know, Guilford, Fleetwood, and so on. And each of them has its own sort of lens and flavor. And Surrey's been growing by about 15% every five-year census. Uh, so when I was born in uh, 1985, uh, Surrey ha- had 150,000 people, and today they're at 517,000, which is quite a, a meteoric rise. Why do people say that? Why do people say meteoric rise? Meteors fall. Uh, don't meteorites fall, and meteors just move around the galaxy? No, they burn up in the atmosphere. M- meteoroids? Meteor, yeah, sorry. It's meteoroids no, yeah. are the ones that are floating around. Is that like creatine? 
Not even a little bit. Uh, I was thinking roids. Oh, no, but creatine, no, creatine's a... It's the only one I can name, okay? It's a thing that I have to, I have to have it so that I don't, like, sweat out all my precious bodily fluids. In any case, Surrey, if you look at it on a map, is very large. It's the same size as Malta. <laughs> Fascinating. Uh, when all the municipalities were being laid out by the provincial government, uh, they basically just picked arbitrary north-south uh, median lines and said, this area between these two lines are now us, this, this municipal municipality. And you see that throughout. You see that in Burnaby. You see that in Langley. You see that in Maple Ridge uh, and so on. Is these like weird vertical lines if you look on a map. And so Surrey is sort of complex because uh, sort of settlement patterns emerged later on and organically rather than the way they are now. So you do have that sort of six town centers. You do have sort of Cloverdale edging over, Cloverdale being a town center of Surrey that is more sort of closely aligned with Langley and so on and so forth. And the name of Surrey comes from like almost everything in Vancouver, just like some British man standing somewhere pointing and going, I will name this that. And in this case, it was literally... This area filled with Douglas firs uh, that is a forest uh, in North America clearly looks like my hometown of Surrey in England. And he just points from across the river even. He doesn't even like go yeah, into it. And he's like, yeah, over there. Let's call that Surrey. Looks like rural England. The ridiculous thing about that is that the British Foreign Office wanted the explorers to use the names that were in use by the people who were living in these places so that future explorers could ask for directions and oh that actually makes sense from like a practicality perspective yes yeah and instead the explorers were like this will be franklin point and franklin bay and simcoe point and simcoe gray and then they all got lost and had to eat their boots and died in the wilderness go see the terror available on amc yeah, uh, so Surrey, to go back, uh, <laughs> Surrey's politics has been very uh, one-sided for a number of years now. In the 80s and early 90s, Surrey was sort of run broadly by a progressive left coalition uh, under Mayor Bob Bowes. But then the Surrey electors team, which was a, a, a right-leaning or fairly far right-leaning anti-tax group that emerged out of that sort of that 90s reform element, came in and ran the city for a number of years under Mayor uh, Doug McCallum. Uh, who then, as that was falling apart, uh, Diane Watts, whom I think everybody at this point uh, is familiar with, emerged and sort of took over and created Surrey First, which is the political party that's been running Surrey ever since. And then Diane Watts eventually passed the torch on to Linda Hepner, who is the current mayor. Uh, and it's been broadly a right-leaning government throughout that process, very pro-business uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, and it got really... Interesting when you look at some of the, the, the political issues that came about in Surrey, where for, I think it was eight or nine years, property taxes were frozen in Surrey. And so what happened was that, you know, the policing forces got less and less budget over the years to a point where, you know, there was, I think the stat was that at any given time, there was at most 36 RCMP officers on duty in Surrey, you know, a city of half a million people. <laughs> and so that policing issue obviously became more and more and more of a problem. Crime grew up at all during that period. Yes. Crime in Surrey, obviously, I mean, we... I think, you know, coming from Surrey, you get a certain amount of, uh, of, of frustration with, you know, the if, if it bleeds, it leads concept, which is, uh, I think you end up with a, if it happens in Surrey, it goes on the paper. And if it happens anywhere else, we don't talk about it as much. But it is really true, you know, that that is where shootings are occurring on a regular basis and have been for some time. Well, and the other aspect of Surrey politics is it seems more recently, Hepner and maybe even Watts were surprisingly reasonable allies with Gregor Robertson, at least in yep. the idea of trying to expand transit across the Lower Mainland, and part of an almost axis with a couple other mm -hmm. mayors. 
Everyone but Lois Jackson and Delta, who are yeah. united sort of in their approach to the provincial government issues. Well, I think I think Surrey uh, oftentimes wants to make sure that it gets its fair share and has a feeling, rightly in some cases and wrongly in some places, of feeling like it's it's ignored for Vancouver. Um, I would be rem- I would be remiss if I didn't point out that Derek Corrigan has effectively taken the stance. What do you mean, build more SkyTrain? We've got all the SkyTrain we need in Burnaby. But you know, to be reductive, of course, but. Yeah, Lois Jackson isn't the only obstructionist mayor. And then the the one thing I want to sort of talk about it with Surrey a little bit about this sort of change is that I think there's been a huge transformation that I think in a lot of ways I have to credit Diane Watts with of changing the way Surrey residents view our, view their city. I, I'm a Vancouver resident now. I should stop saying um, myself as a Surrey resident. But, you know, it's again, Gordon Price talks about this a lot is that, you know, it's it's one of the only cities you can name that was transformed by one single building is that SFU Surrey built downtown building. It's iconic. It's so iconic that Surrey has added it to like it's it, it's now in Surrey's it's the logo. logo. Right? Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And so it's it really that that shifting that creation of a downtown that's occurring right now is really seeing a major change in Surrey. And I think I, I have to credit Diane Watts with moving City Hall and building the new Vancouver the new Surrey Public Library up uh, up there. And that really I think is changing the dynamic around people. No longer feeling ashamed of being from Surrey. Uh, I think that, you know, Surrey being proud of being from Surrey, and that's even now the name of a political party in Surrey is proudly Surrey, uh, is becoming a real thing, which it really wasn't growing up. Uh, I told before we were doing the podcast, I told this anecdote of I remember when I was in Little League uh, baseball as a kid, and we were playing a tournament against a Langley team, and the parents from the Langley team were shouting Surrey jokes at us. You know, I would go to conferences in Ontario and university and have people say, oh, you're from Surrey and like make jokes. And you're like, how is this like small town or like small city in British Columbia known nationwide? And I think that that's that that we're now no longer having that sort of that feeling of having to be shamed for where we're from. Well, it was the late 90s where the Surrey School Board fought and lost at the Supreme Court of Canada for the right to ban yeah. books about gay families the, in the, the schools. The Surrey School Board spent a million dollars on that case going all the way to the Supreme Court to ban books because they had two mommies or two daddies in them. And the person that led the charge on that is a current liberal MLA, and that's Mary Polak. Yes, that that is historically correct. And... You know, much as governments and the common law changes, so do people. And Surrey's had an interesting relationship with provincial and federal politics. We see at the municipal level, you talk about sort of the one state rule or one party rule for Mm -hmm. such a long time. But like in the last provincial election, it was the battleground of the province. And even at the federal election, it's one of the suburbs that are in high flux between sort of small C conservative coalitions and liberal or even mm. new democrat yeah movements. the new democrats do very well in surrey municip- provincially and federally and not well at all municipally and i kind of wonder if that's because the energy is all going to the provincial and the federal levels i can see that possibly being an example i i, I also think that the like existence of such a dominant political party does tend to suck a lot of the people who are interested in municipal politics into its orbit, as you mentioned. Yeah, that's definitely happened. Like, the fact that Musato and Walton on the North Shore got along with Robertson and Corrigan and Hepner and, like, um, what's-his-face up in Port Coquitlam? Greg Moore. Like, those people are not from the same political party mm-hmm. provincially or federally, but 
like municipal politics for all its you know peccadillos is relatively straightforward and easy if you just like <laughs> listen to the experts and try and build a city that makes people like happy to live in it yeah they're all like oh yeah please build us more transit and like reduce the number of deaths and you're you're right that's really that's a, that's a really good point because we have seen that is you know there are city councilors in Surrey like Judy Villeneuve and Vera Lefranc who I think if there were a lefty progressive coalition that had a chance at winning I think they would run with that coalition rather than Surrey first but because it's this one party that always wins if you want to get in and you want to be a city councilor and you want to make change you run with that party and I, I mean that's, that's how the province of Alberta operated for a long time for, well I mean 80 or 90 for... years they just occasionally changed the name on the tin yeah <laughs> I'm still going to say forever, like, fingers crossed. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But yeah, it's really fascinating that, you know, Surrey is this battleground now, uh, politically, more so than any other, I think, part of BC, politically, uh, provincially. Surrey also, through through the the political organization, uh, I think it's safe to say that that, that Surrey was the reason Adrian Dix became leader of the New Democrats, uh, because he he garnered, I think, seven or 8,000 members were were signed up in Surrey alone. Souk Dollywall. Souk Dollywall's a a real machine, yeah. Yeah, the Souk Dollywall machine, um, when Souk was meeting with people at the Christie Clark campaign, he said to them, yeah, I know 100 people who each know 100 people. Uh, and you know those ten thousand memberships really do help out in a oh yeah uh, <laughs> well and that's where that's where Michael Lee and Diane Watts both uh, both got a pile of membership uh, mm-hmm. drives for the last leadership race for the BC Liberals uh, so it, Surrey is very active politically and yet municipally I don't think we haven't really seen over the last fifteen twenty years a very active municipal politics. We've only seen the one municipal party. There have been fits and starts of lefty political parties. And, you know, full disclosure, I was the social media manager for one in, I think, the 2008 municipal election, I want to say. Did you win any um, seats? No, we got, we, we got brutalized. We got absolutely demolished in, like, <laughs> yeah, in an ugly, ugly way. We needed a conflict of interest. <laughs> um, <laughs> Clearly, you needed a better social media campaign. <laughs> I, I did a great job. Yeah. <laughs> it was everything just else. too ahead of your time. Yeah, and it, it, so there have been fits and starts, but it really hasn't, you know, there has been only really a, a single-party state there municipally. And so it's interesting to see people really getting involved now, and we are seeing the rise of a, a number of different political parties. There's infighting within Surrey first over who's going to be their mayoral candidate, although they've now announced that it's Tom Gill. Uh, but I, but Bruce Hayne, as as a city councilor for for Surrey First, has come out against the, the 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 way that that was undertaken, and so it's I think it's really a sign that Surrey might be politically coming into its own as its own large, actual, uh, multifaceted city. Can they develop a horrifying culture of polarization as well to match Vancouver's? Only time will tell. Well, I think after so many years of just one party being in, cracks are inevitably going to be. Forming. That's what happened yep. in Ontario. That's what happened here in BC. Well, and that's what and happened with, with Surrey Electors team, the party before Surrey first. And when cracks form, parties emerge, apparently, as mm-hmm. we're even seeing here in Vancouver. And so now is this a is this a like regional wave? Because I, like when I was looking at it and when we did the episode on the mayors biting the dust, there are a lot of mayors retiring. There's a lot of council turnover. There's a lot of council and Not only turnover. in Vancouver or in Surrey, yeah. but all, all across the, environment. the region. Mm-hmm. There are very few cities where the mayor is running for re-election. So, like, why? What is happening here? Is it just that, like, politicians have been like, this seems like a change election, and then this enters into some kind of positive feedback loop? I, I know for a fact for some of them, uh, it really was getting the transit deal done. I know for some of the mayors, they really worked hard to get that transit deal done. And they stuck around in large part because of that. 
Uh, I think some of the other uh, assessment that's been come out is that, you know, four-year term is a long time. And, you know, a lot of these mayors have been mayor for quite a, quite some time. Uh, you know, there's a lot of multi-term mayors that are, are turning over. But, yeah, it is fa- interesting to see this sort of, like, regional wave of change. And it is going to be really interesting because there's going to be a very new mayor's council. And I, I mean new in the naive sense. They won't know what they're doing. The uh, good news is that means lots of content for us beyond October twentieth. Yeah. Well, they're gonna they're gonna have to learn how to operate, learn how to how, learn how to work together. Each everybody's gonna need to meet and get to know each other. Uh, it's gonna be interesting. Uh, and who knows who's gonna be mayor of Surrey? Because there are rumors and a whole lot of smoke, and maybe where there's smoke, there's fire. Former cabinet minister Rich Coleman might uh, leave his Langley riding uh, and jump into the mayor's uh, race in Surrey. Coleman, the former interim leader of the BC Liberals as well. He, uh, and the minister of... Fucking everything. everything. He was housing at one point. He, he it had was... housing, liquor, gaming, and all the things you dig out of the ground and burn. Yes, the minister of housing and gaming and liquor and natural gas and energy and mines. Or and, Mofi, and some of the things you don't as, burn. Uh, as our true. current premier called, called him, the minister of fucking everything. Yep. Uh, and so he might be running, which would be really an interesting change to the race. I mean, he he would be coming from out of out of the city, but I think there is a lot of correlation overlap with Langley, Surrey, um, especially in some of the communities there. Uh, but yeah, so that's going to be really interesting. And so if he runs, uh, he'll be running against. We know Tom Gill is running uh, for Surrey first, uh, and so that could be quite the race. Uh, and also, Tom Gill could potentially be the first uh, South Asian mayor of Surrey, and also the first South Asian mayor of any major city in BC that I'm aware of. Uh, and that would be, I think, a real interesting first. A Surrey first. A Surrey first. Ooh. There's been a few other names because we have put together, or I have put together the Surrey list on the ongoing spreadsheet that I've maintained, which I've actually opened up to anyone to edit. I saw that. And I'm That's just dangerous. like waiting for it to bite me. But so far, people have been really good in actually adding useful information. So the crowdsource wisdom works for now. If people wreck it, I can undo can all the changes. You can always undo any yeah. changes. But if you people you know, treat it well, dear listeners, <laughs> dear listeners, not you people, dear listeners, if you treat it well, we'll keep it open. But there are a couple other names who've been floated as maybes. You have Doug McCallum on this list? He had come no as a maybe in one. He was so hated when he left. His name was floated in one article a while back. So nostalgia is a powerful force. There's Brenda Rousseau, who's, I believe, involved in cannabis. Berinda Rossotti uh, has been involved in uh, municipal politics in Surrey for a long time, and uh, she has bounced back and forth. Uh, she is known to be a bit of a... a, a uh, I think Linda Hepner herself uh, would you would use the phrase backstabber. Uh, she has uh, re- twice left political parties that she was a part of in order to uh, join a different one, or in order to run on her own, or this, that, or the other thing. She's a, a very controversial candidate. But it's interesting that despite the rise of this proudly Surrey and its attempt to sort of make a name and chance for a left, they haven't really moved for mayor. They're looking mostly at council, it looks like. I think that's a smart play. A lot of the the opposition to Surrey first oftentimes doesn't run a mayoral candidate because they'll lose. But this time might be different. Uh, But no, I think it's a smart play to run your best candidates for council. Uh, And so they've gotten Stuart Parker, who is a a fairly well-known name, and he... You know, he's, that's a good get for, for Proudly Surrey to have. He's controversial, for sure. He's a former New Democrat. He, he quit the NDP over Site C Dam, if I recall correctly. Uh, he runs a, a blog. Uh, he's also a former leader of the Green Party in BC. So he's, he's in that lefty politics, but generally has been that sort of Green Party, sort of not pro-labor uh, wing of the progressive movement, as it were. So that's a, you know, it's a, it's a good get for them, but also a controversial get. 
is that like I'm not disputing that it is probably better for a upstart party to run its best people for city council rather than mayor, but is it wise to not run a mayor at all? Because my like intuition says that it is better to have someone at the top of the ticket to just hold place. Yeah, that's a good question, and I think. Uh, if you ask people that have been involved in COPE for the last 20 years, I think they will. Ha- some of them will give you one answer and some of them will give you another because COPE has done that that difficult math. I think if you ask a Green Party supporter in Vancouver municipally, I think that they would say, absolutely, run your best person for council because then we can get Adrian Carr elected. And that's the thin edge of the wedge to keep getting more people elected. So I think it could work in some cases, but also I think you're absolutely right is that it you know, it, it can make you irrelevant. If you don't have a voice at the top, you don't necessarily get in on those mayoral debates if there are any and so on and so forth. So what you need is a very qualified person who doesn't actually want to be mayor, but will seem like they do. <laughs> that's that's a fair point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But not popular enough to get actually elected because that would be a disaster. There's a reference to cope again here, isn't there? Probably. But coming back to Surrey, the other name, the other group that's put its name forward is the Surrey Community Alliance. Do you know anything about them? So that's being organized by Doug Elford. Uh, Doug Elford has been involved in sort of municipal, he's been attempting to get involved in municipal political uh, activity uh, in Surrey for a number of years now, uh, primarily because it's hard for anybody to get elected that's not Surrey first. And so he ran for the Surrey Civic Coalition uh, a number of years ago when that was a political party that was in existence. Uh, And he's trying to pull this new sort of progressive alliance together as well. And so it is interesting to see these two different groups coming together. One sort of very green affiliated, Green Party broadly affiliated, and one fairly sort of, I think, more NDP affiliated. Uh, And so, you know, the one will get the Northwest District Labor Council's endorsement and the other might not. Uh, Northwest District Labor Council, I should mention, similar to what we've been talking about with the VDLC, they're uh, they're quite the force in the region and uh, they overlap into Surrey oftentimes. Uh, but yeah, that's that's another interesting one. It's going to be. I'm curious to see this play out because I think from a, a policy standpoint, Surrey has a lot of questions to ask about where it wants to go, how it wants to build out that downtown that they're attempting to build. Because where that's going as well, uh, SkyTrain versus LRT is a debate that is continuing to go on to, despite what we all think in Vancouver. We all think that it's a settled deal and it's going to be LRT. Uh, I think Surrey First has often pushed LRT because you can get more kilometers per dollar, but there's a big movement to change it over to SkyTrain. Policing is an ongoing concern as well. Schools, obviously, you know, we've got a huge amount of youth living in Surrey and that's another key indicator. Uh, And housing, obviously, you know, I think housing in Surrey is still what we would consider the affordable end of the regional spectrum. But when you are seeing, you know, there are 400 square foot, you know, apartments going up by Gateway Station, for example, Gateway Station being uh, formerly a very rundown neighborhood that's now gradually mm-hmm. becoming redeveloped. When they're going for, you know, close to, you know, 150 to $200,000, that's getting out of people's price range for a, a one bedroom. And that's starting to mean that Surrey is not even the place that you can go to afford to live anymore. And that's going to be a question for the next council. Well, is there anything else that either of you feel our listeners absolutely need to know about Surrey politics or the upcoming election. We will, you know, come back to it, of course, but, you know, out of our first look. I have one point, uh, and this more is a, a Surrey Atta, if as it were, instead of a Vancouver Atta, is King George Highway is the highway that runs uh, along from the Patella Bridge all the way into South Surrey. And about eight or nine years ago, the city of Surrey renamed it King George Boulevard. And I absolutely love that they renamed it to Boulevard without changing any of the, all of the various wide road, highway, strip mall, 
variety. Uh, and I think that that is a very Surrey thing to do at this point is they're, they're gradually transitioning into being a real city, a real major force. Uh, and that, that rebranding boulevards highway everything. to boulevard. And finally, internal documents uh, use the acronym to describe King George Boulevard. And so they frequently, uh, in planning documents, refer to KGB. <laughs> well, if we could all turn our hymnals to Kettle Boffo. So... The Kettle Society is one of the many nonprofits that does a lot of good work in Vancouver in trying to provide for the marginalized, the people poor, the homeless, yeah. and people with disabilities. Primarily. And they'd been working with the developer Bafo to build this social housing unit. Yeah, there's two properties involved, and there would be an amalgam of the two, I believe. Uh, and it's Bafo has some of the property, Kettle owns the other part, uh, and they would work together to... Essentially, I think it's a doubling of the square footage that Bafo has. It would add, I think, 50 more uh, fifty more live-in units that Bafo would be able to, to be able to provide to the people that they, they support, as well as significantly increase their drop-in space uh, for people to be there for day, day purposes. And in exchange, uh, Bafo, the developer... Uh, we get to build, I think it was an eight or a 10 story tower in behind essentially that property that would allow for, that would force a rezoning to go above what would be the Granby Woodlands height restriction as well as density restrictions. But the news this week is that Bafo has pulled the plug. They put out this passionate letter on social media. Very well branded. And talked about how important this project was for mental health, for marginalized groups, but the city that evil city <laughs> just had to crush their financial ability to make it sustainable and affordable with CACs. So what is a CAC? Uh, community amenity contributions, uh, or DCCs, uh, development cost, or DCLs, development cost levies. Every city has one, and they, they're different levels of different cities. They, they're different names. Basically, when you put in people into a neighborhood, you're, you are going to further tax the municipal structures of that neighborhood. Whether it's the sewer lines, the power lines, or the amount of park space required per capita, you are going to tax that. And you're, so, going to, you're going to strain it. Like, you're going to put strain yes, on Yes, when it. I say tax, I mean strain, not yeah, tax. Not. And so what when municipalities do is they don't, they, they, it's impossible to say only charge, you know, you for your development for what it does to its space. What you do is you say every extra person costs this much money or what have you not. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's different ways that municipalities can do that. And in Vancouver, there's oftentimes negotiations around CACs. There's a lot of examples for that. For example, uh, oftentimes under the rental incentive program, full stop rental developments for purpose-built rental uh, will have a lot of the, the, the CAC or DCLs waived so that they don't have to pay to build some element of social, uh, of, of social benefit because the city has deemed rental to be a social a social benefit. Uh, and so that's how, one way they can incentivize that. Yeah, so the developer claimed six to, uh, I think they said six to $16 million uh, would be the, the CAC. And that's probably true that that would be the initial CAC before it gets adjusted. It's been very fascinating to watch this process because uh, CACs get negotiated informally before the official proposal is submitted so that, you know, the developer has some sense of what's coming up. It is true and it's oftentimes criticized that it's a fairly, uh, that it's a not a transparent process that we can't really look into it. But it is very difficult to do those kind of negotiations because oftentimes a developer, so for example, my building that I live in, uh, I live in the Wall Center Falls Creek, part of the CAC was waived because the developer, Wall, built a theater company in the main floor of one of the buildings. Mm -hmm. uh, for uh, you know, Arts One and the Bard on the Beach to be able to make use of. And oh, with all the pretty dresses. Yes. Uh, well, and the interesting thing is with that is that you know that provided a community amenity contribution. It also probably increased the valuation of the building because mm -hmm. it's cool to live in a building with a theater on the main floor. And so like 
there are ways in which developers will oftentimes seek to get a, a CAC contribution waived because they're putting in something. Uh, the Aquilinis uh, were requesting to build uh, an East Vancouver uh, arena to be used as a visiting team practice facility uh, during the season in exchange for their CAC contributions for the build the towers they put around Rogers Arena. Uh, that was not allowed by the city because the city said, you kind of want that anyways. Uh, <laughs> and you probably are going to build an arena anyways. Uh, and so they didn't allow that in that case. So these things are, and it's very hard to do that kind of a negotiation because, you know, how do you value what that so that social benefit is? Well, and on the city side, they've been all over social media with Kevin Quinlan, the city manager. Yep. KQ. And- Others really, really pushed back. Andrew really Reimer also heavily pushed back. Basically making the case that Bafo hadn't done much of the actual work or paperwork in submitting this. Mm-hmm. They were waiting for actual plans to be submitted, some applications. And it's kind of looks from, or at least what their claim is, is that Bafo saw, saw, yeah, saw an yeah. initial price tag, went, no, we can't go anywhere from that. And just walked away before even like getting to the starting line. It does fit a lot of narratives of the city being difficult to work with, uh, which may or may not be true. I'm not a developer. I've never tried to build a building, so I don't know. But it fits a lot of these narratives, and it fits a lot of... And, and so it was latched onto by a lot of people amongst the Hector Bremner team, uh, as well as being an opponent thing, uh, because, you know, this is a good project in my mind. Even I even saw Patrick Condon, though, for the COPE side, taking issue with this and saying, look, here's why we need a clear city plan across the entire city to just provide clarity and provide a standard yeah, all of them. I, I really push back oftentimes on this view that CACs should just be a flat rate. I think that there is a place to say that, you know, you want to put something in that's a benefit. We'll, we'll give you a bit of a leeway on it. We'll what have you not. And I think there is a value to it in that. Yeah, and I think it's too oversimplified to say that CACs should be a flat rate. Like, it kind of reminds me of something that Councillor Reimer said during our live show, which is that, like, she likes rules. Rules are there to protect people. Uh, in my opinion, rules have been there to generally reinforce the power of the ruling class over working class people and marginalized people for most of human history. When, when leniency is shown, it is shown to people on the upper end of the income spectrum and privileged spectrum. So, I mean, Man, is- that live show really turned you into a full commie. <laughs> but no, I like I was actually thinking the same thing. And like yeah. the the flexibility here has both strengths and weaknesses. On the one hand, the critique of that flexibility, like you set out the advantages, but the critique would be that it allows political parties to pay off their friends. Yeah, it's true. And I mean you you do now you do now have thankfully limits on that that, that financing. But I mean the the, the CLC uh, or the the DCL or whatever you want to call it uh, CACs that combined with the the rampant political donations of developers really riled people up. I think understandably. Uh, but it should be noted too there was huge opposition to Kettle Bafo uh, amongst people in the Grandview Woodland community. The community leaders there, like Jack King, uh, waged uh, waged war uh, over it. Uh, the No Towers signs was specifically about this this development, and it it really was a controversial development for a long time. Uh, and so I, I should give some 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 air to the people that opposed this project because I think it's silly that they opposed it, but also because they did uh, they did ma- do major major campaigning. I think that's fine as long as the air is all carbon dioxide and they all suffocate to death because that, I swear to, <laughs> like, it is absolutely nonsense to to let, uh, like, organized nimbyism dictate 
Yeah, like, and I think that the, this 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 was like an eight or a ten story building. It was going to be set back from the road, and so the shadow the shadow problem wasn't as severe as you know if it was right on the road, and also. It's near eight-story buildings, anyways. Uh, I don't under this, this this yeah this NIMBY Gravy Woodland community group that uh, seems to rear its ugly head all the time. Really, for, quite frustrates me actually. Yeah, I mean, but it's like every community group. It's like every board of one of the community centers. It's like every one of these like little Vancouver organizations that like Vancouver as it is, but don't realize that status quos by you know the necessity of the space-time continuum change. And so want to freeze things in aspic in order to make everything the same and perfect forever. Well, and I can get the, like, say, Chinatown opposition to 105 Kiefer when some of the early plans of it were on the very market-heavy, let's just sort of Mm -hmm. gentrify what's a historic and unprotected area of the city. I mean, this this is a criticism that developers have made of Vision's 20% requirement for affordable housing in new multi-unit developments because in small units like the 10-unit apartment that you see all over the West End, it becomes actually quite a bit more difficult to put two of those 10 apartments aside for social housing uh, and still make a profit on the rest of the building. Yeah, but there's there's mechanisms in place for you to be able to pay off your your share of that space. Yeah, but is it, no, no, it's, it's the profit at the end of it. Yes. Well, and that, that's actually one of the things that uh, really that Andrew Reimer really elucidated on uh, with the, the Kendall Buffalo situation was that uh, the developer was uh, was seeking a profit margin uh, significantly out of the norm uh, for developments, and that staff were not going to recommend approval based on the the, the amount that was there. Uh, it's it's a very complicated issue, uh, and I think that there's it's easy to be on a lot of sides of this, other than the fact that I don't really respect the side that says t- height is a problem. I'll take just five seconds, well, 30 seconds on this. Height does, like, Vancouver's a very dark city, so sunshine can be important. And there is almost an irony of a building for people with mental health issues creating more darkness, which could lead to mental health issues in others. But I I take your point that the majority of the buildings in the area are in that area. (laughs) And and I think think the the reason I get opposed to the height issue is not because I think that it's a frivolous issue. I think it's used as a front to, to, to deny projects. I think there are concerns about shading and there are concerns about height. And I, I like, I support the view cones uh, protection in Vancouver, for example. I just find, I think oftentimes the no towers people uh, as a concept, uh, oftentimes are using that as a, a shady stand in for don't add density and don't move people into my neighborhood. Well, only time will tell whether this development will be absolutely boffo or an entirely oh, different God. kettle of fish. <laughs> oh, don't talk about kettle of fish. That became a whole political issue like three elections ago. Nobody remembers the Kettle of Fish Company that was oh, at like the foot of the Burrard Bridge that went out of business like two elections ago and the NPA claimed uh, that it was due to the bike lane. <laughs> oh. Well, last week, what was happening in municipal politics last week? Uh, any notable news? I went to a Yes Vancouver platform meeting. Uh, yes, Vancouver is the, the, the soon-to-be-named Hector Bremer party? Yeah, it's definitely maybe getting named Yes Vancouver. And they're, they're running with Yes Vancouver? Yes, mm-hmm. Vancouver. Why can't we have well-named political parties municipally? Like, Surrey's municipal political parties are all stupidly named. Vancouver's municipal poli- parties are all stupidly named. A North Van has one named Building Bridges. Who don't have an opinion on building an additional bridge. <laughs> oh, what? What? 
Yeah, building the Building Bridges Coalition for the is neutral on the question of whether we should doesn't build have a huh. position on a third crossing of the Red Inlet, which I thought that that was going to be their raison d'etre. But no, that's certainly what their name would imply, unless yeah. of course they were trying to build ambulance bridges to get over the cut. No, no, but it's, that's it's community, it's metaphorical bridges. Yes, like why can't we have well-named political parties? Like I, I, I am going to say that yes, Vancouver is a stupid name, but I will not give them any more shade than I will give everyone else because they're all dumb. It's. Yeah. It's l- so what did they talk about at this policy meeting? A lot of housing. There's a lot of housing, as one might expect. And then a, a brief apocalyptic presentation on the coming effects of climate change to Vancouver and some thoughts on the opiate crisis and other I'm glad to hear that they're giving they're giving voice to the opioid, opioid crisis, something that we've been we've been waiting to do a special episode on uh, for a little while now. Uh, and I think that it is really important to keep highlighting that, although I do understand why housing is going to take up a lot of that oxygen. So, yeah, they're, they're, they're working on it. They're bringing in experts. They're having people talk. It felt fun. This is a, I think, point. an underreported yeah. Yeah. You know, fact about political party meetings. If you go to a convention and your convention feels like a funeral, you're going to lose the next election. Yeah. And if it feels like a party... Uh, you're either going to win the next election or exceed all expectations. Like it's mm-hmm. it's going to be a good time if your core volunteer base is motivated and you know raring to go. And and that's I think where having beat reporters that actually work this beat is really valuable because they can go and they can see these over and over again and get a sense of why this is different. And this is why you know podcasts that take time out of our lives to go and see these things and make sure that we we get a sense of it really valuable. And I think that if you value that time, I think you could go to patreon.com slash the canby report. Uh, no, <laughs> patreon.com slash canby report yes, slash canby report. But no, it is really true. It's like, it's, I think it's patreon.com slash can be report. Yeah. And, 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 you know, Matthew, you going to that means that we get a sense of the feel of the room. And that, that is really true. You're right. Is I am right. It is patreon.com slash can be report. Three times every time. Yep. But yeah, you can, you can get that feel. Uh, it's fascinating. Uh, the, the rumor, the question, the, you know, beginning of, uh, Anastasia, have you heard there's a rumor in, yes, Vancouver is, uh, will Melissa DiGenova defect from the MPA? And that is an unanswered question. Was she there? Uh, she was not there, but Brenner was, and most of the other declared candidates was were. Was Aaron Schum there? Because she's been highly Pregnant spoken of. Or with a new baby? They've got a, well, they've yes. got a, they've got a wonderful new baby, and uh, I've seen some adorable photos on Facebook. So I think they may have been doing that. Yeah. But, you know, Schum would be one, Brenner would be another, and DiGenova would be the third of the possible pickups from the last election's crop of NPA successful candidates. Interesting, yeah. And that, I think, if they can pick up Melissa, Melissa DiGenova is somebody who I don't, I, I, I found her to be very inconsistent on council. She's been consistently inconsistent in terms of her positions that she has. But in terms of, you know, a lot of the, the criticisms that have been levied against the, the Yes Vancouver team, she'd be very valuable for them for gender balance and being able to ensure that they have an equity, an, an equitable slate of candidates. Uh, you know, if, they've, if, if their council candidates are, you know, Adrian Crook, Aaron Schum, uh, Melissa DeGeneva, and maybe one or two others, uh, you're, you're looking pretty balanced at that point. It. It also uh, would bring a considerable amount of hustle and experience to the ticket. Yeah. Because... She knows communities. She knows communities. She has been, like, barnstorming through the the MPA vote for the past two elections. First on Parks Board, then on City Council. 
park board, sorry, and like she works hard. Admittedly, I don't always agree with her style of politics. I think that she will, instead of fully thinking through a policy idea, sometimes just say something that makes her constituents and her base the most angry and then ride that like a remora on the belly of a great rage whale. So, well, and she has been, for that reason, I think one of the more controversial yeah. counselors among people who follow it religiously, as it were. And yeah. whether that has any effect on the wider you know, public that votes, or if they're just kind of going, who's been on the ballot before and hasn't well, and, made and, headlines about being incompetent? And if you're an average voter and you go to a function and she's there... Okay you feel like you're connected to a city councillor and you're more likely to vote for her, even if you don't ever see what her voting record is or what her statements are. And you're not. You're not going to see what her voting record is because city council is like the definition of low-information voting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can look up everybody's voting record. Oh, it's possible. Yes, it's, you can. It's but, oftentimes like but you're a month not going date, to. But you're yeah, probably no, not going to. going to. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah, thanks for going to that. Well, the other thing municipally that I've just been noticing, and I'll just touch on it quickly, is... Kennedy Stewart, his face is on every billboard in this neighborhood. He's maybe that's running. just an East Van, or maybe yeah. it's a, or sorry, maybe that's just a, you know, Kitsilano thing, or maybe his posters are everywhere. And he has thankfully put us on his media press distribution list, and I encourage all parties to do this, but mm-hmm. has been consistently putting out. way, Kim. <laughs> yes, all of you put us on your list. He's put up, we've gotten a few of his press releases, and the one I found interesting is he's already disclosing his donor list. So he's saying, you know, I've raised $30,000. Hector, Way, Ken, $30,000. Yeah. That's that's a respectable amount at this stage in the campaign. From, a, I think it was a few hundred people. Yeah. $75 average donation, so. It's, that's, that's fairly respectable at this point. And if you've got $75 average donations, you've got a lot of room to go up in terms of the people that are donating to you. Get them to donate a couple times. Yeah. Well, and... You know, he he isn't actually running for a political party nomination. He is running as an independent. And in the coming weeks, there will be some more candidates locked into their official nominations on the Green and Vision Party's candidacy lists. Indeed, the Green Party is having their nomination meeting on Wednesday, June 27th. And that should be interesting to see who ends up getting those third. The pro- I mean, I don't want to say Pete Fry is a, is a shoe in but he's a shoe in for that second spot. Who's going to get that third spot, whether it's going to be Michael Weeb coming out of Park Board and running for council, as well as the Park Board candidates and the, 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 the school board candidates that the Greens are going to run. Well, and there were two. I had tracked who was saying they were running for the Green nomination. There were actually a couple people who had put their name forward. I think Adam Abrams and Rick Hurlbutt, who both disappeared between... Saying they were running and the Greens announcing their slate. And it seems like the Greens green light process mulched them, mulched them, as it were. I won't speculate on what the Greens actual reasoning was, but I mean, it suggests that the Greens did go through and looked into these people and went, there's something there that doesn't mesh with what we want to present as a party. Now, does it feel at all different from the MPA deep-sixing of the Bremner candidacy and subsequent, like, removal of a bunch of the council candidates from consideration by the MPA? I think the difference is Hector is a sitting councillor. So he had already essentially been stamped by the NPA and won for them, versus these were people who were maybe members, maybe new members, and had come to the Greens seeking their approval. So it's I find... This way more normal politics yeah. of just the 
who is this person? Let's look at their record. Oh, maybe there's some. Well, and also, uh, it should be noted that Nicholas Chernin is still running, is still in the race for the Greens as a, as a potential candidate. Glenn Chernin's notable brother. And it did come out recently, I, you know, and, and, you know, when I, I talked to Pete Fry about this at our live show, because uh, Pete came out to our live show, which was really cool. Uh, and I asked him about it and he said, you know, he spun it a bit, but he did say, you know, Nicholas is not his brother. He's got interest in the city and he's got a real interest in. He in, said that Nicholas was not his brother? Like, or he, he's not his brother, isn't he? He's not, not similar to Glenn Chernin. Oh, he uh, is not. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, he's very different. Glenn. He's got, he, he's got a real interest in, in, in improving the city and a couple of other things. Well, um, but it's boring. But I did, but I mean, I, I do remember the last municipal election when, when and Nicholas and, and Glenn both were fighting for the Cedar Party and they both were driving their hot rods up and down Point Grey Road, fight, uh, arguing against the bike lane. And so, like, how different is he in those four years? And you know, where that's where does he stand on those issues is a real concern. Is a real thought. The municipal Green Party has been a bit all over the place on bike lanes. Absolutely, so maybe or he is at home. Really, many things, as evidenced by the voting record of Councillor Carr. Yeah. It's absolutely true. And so on June 27th, the Green Party will wrap up their nomination. On July 4th, American Independence Day, Vision Vancouver will be meeting to do their nominations. So lucky for us, by early July, I think most or all of the political parties will have locked in a lot of their candidates and will have a real sense of who's running and we won't have to talk about the VDLC or negotiations or nomination battles and we can dig into policy some more. Well, policy will be very exciting, but right now we have the weather. A tweet storm has erupted outside City Hall with tropical depression, sorry, topical depression, Wei Young, uh, blasting bike lanes all across the city. I really didn't think she was going to run. She had been... I told you she she was going to run, but... She registered a website like four months ago. And had set up this coalition Vancouver. And so it was. She has so much baggage. She said that, you know, Stephen Harper was a gift from Jesus Christ. Like, that's so much baggage. I mean, my name means gift from God. So, like, theologically, I understand (laughs) her point. It is simultaneously a totally mad thing to say in public. Yeah, absolutely. And like her platform is, it's out of this world. Like the idea, like her, her policy on bike lanes is first of all, rip up all the ones that are under construction, the 10th Avenue, the, the, the Camby Bridge one and so on. But also any new bike lane will have to see another bike lane removed. That isn't even just an anti-bike lane policy. That's just stupid. She's also going hard on the hashtags. I was joking before in that she is torturing them. Well, so on her placards, she was saying 100% for the people. She's mm. putting it all in there. Capital T, capital Those placards P, were terrible. the people. But on Twitter, that got shortened to hashtag 100 for people, which doesn't mean anything. But even more hilariously, as a politician, her main tagline is people, not politics, when she is running in politics. I and hate, it's that I hate attempt. that right wing hate the politicians politics it's not helpful it's not constructive and it's not accurate she's a politician just like everyone else and when she tries to say you know no you don't keep the politics out of it it's like well then what 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 else are you doing there is no such thing as doing politics differently there is doing politics and not doing politics and so i guess so she's in she... favor of freeing the roads keeping the georgia viaducts free parking on sundays what why why all right uh, but I think you guys wanted to talk about her amazing Twitter account during her speech. And this is the thing, this tweet storm of 20 or 30 tweets erupted all from at Wei Young 
and written by one of her staffers who you know was given her yep. phone or something Excellent. and or the login the or the account. login yeah. and they were live tweeting her announcement of this mayoral run with just brief but punchy let's say quotes Pungent. like and remember also, when the city tried to make our lives better and more prosperous and also like spelling like the seriously need for spell check and oh they did try 100 the geoja viaduct was one g-e-o-g-i-a Take a look at your tweets before you hit send. Potentially was ESL, but it's also you're tweeting in English to the English language market. Yeah, there's that. Apparently, uh, hashtags can't include the percent sign because they did try 100% yeah. people. Uh, no, special characters are not uh, in hashtags. So they like ampersand for Dungeons and Dragons. They don't use the ampersand because it breaks up the hashtag, mm. uh, which is the nerdiest way that I could explain that. Oh, no, you didn't mention the Unicode consortium. So I think, you know, we could go there. Well, and I think but it, we're not going in to. one of her in one of the tweets. She had complained about the rise of homeliness of the city. Yeah, like it's which just, is a tough autocorrect to do because yeah, like this is a this is a fairly slick campaign that's got you know it's got buttons it's got pamphlets it's got branding it's got fortune cookies I'm seeing now on Twitter but like how do you hand that off to like somebody that doesn't even check spell check I don't know maybe they thought Vancouver was getting more ugly I was wondering about that wow, I was even, like you don't like glass I mean like it doesn't the, homely the, the, the fortune cookies are actually like campaign material working 100% for people not politics www.votewhyyoung.ca is like literally the fortune. Huh. It's like for 100% of the people, but not the 8% of the people who use bike lanes or cycle to work or walk or take transit or the train. And, you know, a majority of the city of Vancouver residents don't take their car to work. Bike lanes will eat your babies. We, we literally have it's something like 47% of Vancouver residents commute by car. That means 50-something percent are not. And the number that are not is getting bigger and bigger every month. They will give you dysentery. And so I, I, I really question whether or not we have the political political will in this city to, to have an anti-bike lane party. I mean, the MPA have done that three times and lost. They and... will teach your children to dance on your parents' graves. Well, And it's that point. Like, the NPA has run this campaign into the ground yeah. and shown it works less and less each time. But, but it, she is going to get some percentage of the vote. Like, she is going to get, you know, 6 or 8% of the vote. And that is going to claw that vote away from somebody else that would be getting it otherwise. Probably, mm, the bulk mm, of it is probably coming from the NPA. Disagree. I think that, like, half of it might be coming from somewhere else, and half of it is her mobilizing. No, people uh, that wouldn't yeah. otherwise vote. I can yeah. see that. But, like, you're still, you're, you're knocking some percentage off somebody else. Probably the bulk of it coming from the NPA, uh, especially with uh, them the both being uh, you know, Asian candidates. And, you know, you're, you're further reducing the threshold barrier to become mayor as a percentage of the vote. And, like, now we're at, what, seven candidates, 11 candidates, 15 candidates for mayor I think that I counted are viable? 13 if you included some maybes. But, but, like, oh, like, sorry, let's, viability. Let's only look at the viable ones, right? You know, we really are looking at a possible 24% of the vote mayor. And, I mean, great for proportional representation advocates because the referendum for that starts two days after they, the municipal vote. But not great for the idea that this is a mayor that's of the, that's elected by the people. You it's can't basically have how proportional representation in a race of one. You can have a rank, or at least some kind of not first past the post. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I yeah. agree with you. An alternative vote, but like, let's not you know oh, no, no, I, yeah. confuse the things. Yeah, but it's it, this is I think an electoral reform argument right there. But yeah, so she's gonna claw probably six seven percent of the vote, and 
that is going to hurt the NPA's chances probably, and is also going to redu- going to make it easier for a mayor to get elected with a very small percentage of the vote. And it's also going to make mayoral debates more and more difficult to run. Yeah, how do you have six people on a stage talking? I mean, federally, we had problems with that with the Bloc and the NDP and the Conservatives and the Liberals and the Greens all at you know, the one table, and it worked, but it was hard. Republicans did it with 13. Yeah, but that was a joke. No, they didn't. They tried. Yeah, it did not work. And look what happened. And that is a real concern, too, is like, do you do your 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 cause a disservice by running for mayor rather than, you know, fighting for the mayor that's closest to you in values? I don't know. I actually don't know who I'm going to vote for for mayor uh, yet. And basically, it's because of that question. So this is a wild and wonderful city filled with interesting historical facts. This is Vancouverada, a segment where we have combined the name of the city with errata, meaning random facts. So I think today, Patrick, you wanted to talk about why, I guess, almost in a roundabout way, why we have so many municipalities in the lower mainland, and partially why cities really like to vote against themselves. Yeah, uh, you know, we... We have two North Vancouver's, uh, we have two Langley's, and we have two Surrey's, but one of them is called White Rock. And, you know, we have a poor Coquitlam and a Coquitlam, and we have... And so, the you know, people always ask me, and I, I don't mean that literally, but people always ask me why these, these, these cities are divided. Hey, dear listeners, please always ask Patrick, why are these cities so divided? Seriously, give me a chance to go back in time to, like, the 1920s, because I love doing it. And... What happened was, you know, in the 1920s, 1930s, and, and earlier, the tax base was in the rural areas, and the population was in the, the city centers. And so the city centers kept controlling the, the, the electorate, but all the tax money was coming from the farmers. Uh, and so what would happen is, you know, cities are expensive to build. Uh, they, they require streetlights, whereas farm, farm communities don't. They require sewers, whereas farm communities don't. And so as we're starting to build our cities in the lower mainland, all these farming communities started rising up against the cities. And so you had referendums to secede from the municipality in Surrey and Langley and the North Shore, uh, primarily driven by farmers or other industri- other other groups or rural groups. And God forbid we try this newfangled electricity thing. And but uh, the, the the sloganeering was amazing. It was you know not one not one farmer dime for city city streets or for city lights and things like that. And so Surrey voted White Rock out of Surrey. Uh, the, the Langley Township, uh, and the city of Langley divided, uh, North Vancouver divided and so on and so forth. Uh, and it's just, it's fascinating to me that we had this, uh, essentially a tax revolt in, you know, the, the 19 dickety twos determined to kick out the cities. And now if you look at it, the urban areas are where all the tax money comes from and rural areas are, are heavily subsidized. Uh, and so it's fascinating, this sort of like everything on its head kind of thing. Well, uh, they tried to say let those urban bastards freeze in the dark, but they built the street lamps anyway, and eventually North Vancouver came around. Yeah, and the district would love to merge with the city because it would mean significantly more services. But the, the city, city is, is very reluctant. The city's a little reluctant to, cut, to bring them back into the table. Well, and things came close recently. There was talk of running an amalgamation referendum or restarting those talks even just a couple months ago, but yep. that that comes went. up before every. Election. I think the city is pro- the city is, is 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 leery on it because the district costs a lot more money to provide services to because it's far out, it's it's spaced out, and so on. And you know you see the same thing in Langleys. The Langleys are very confusingly divided now. 
uh, when you look at it and you see the same thing in White Rock, where White Rock is this little tiny sliver of land. Uh, it's just a fascinating, it's fascinating to me that that, that that occurred. And I know that it's maybe not the most exciting issue. Well, even if you look around the world at a lot of independence movements, at least in industrialized countries, a lot of them, not all, are somewhat divided on economic lines, especially, yeah. for example, Spain, like Barcelona is very wealthy. Yeah. And that and arguably northern, drives part of its desire to... Yeah, Northern Italy as well. Uh, nor, the nor, Northern Italy separation movement is very much the economically affluent portion of Italy. League Nord Italia. And even yeah. J- Alberta's somewhat joking separatist movement is all about why are we subsidizing the rest of the country through equalization payments? Because people in Alberta don't understand how equalization payments go. <gasps> but that's a subject for another podcast. <laughs> yeah, the... Man, I am so amazed at, at how little tax education people have. You know, people that think that if they get a pay raise, you know, they'll, they'll bump into a higher tax bracket and then it'll mean that they're paying, you know, they've lost their entire pay raise. And you're like, that's not how that works at all. Oh, but thank fucking God we all learned conics. Well, I'll give a shout out to having Lindsay Ted's on the latest episode of Politicoast because she is a tax economist who I feel like can actually sometimes explain. Yeah. Lindsay what is, Lindsay what is by far my favorite tax economist on Twitter. I mean, like uh, top five, right? Well, she's top of my list uh, yeah. with Trevor Tombay, uh, Rob Rob Gilzo, and uh, Kevin Milligan. Kevin Milligan uh, and one or two others. I love how many tax economists we have on Twitter. How to do your taxes and media literacy. That's what they should be teaching in high school, yeah. junior high, elementary, basically day one. This has yeah. been another episode right. of, of the Canby Report, our uh, our fairly regular podcast where we look at the municipal politics of Vancouver and the regions around it. We're looking forward to getting more into the other regions where I think we've got a special on the North Shore plant for early July. Uh, we're looking on a few other issues there. Uh, and it should be really fun as we keep going through the summer. We're going to be announcing a live show very soon, we hope. Stay tuned to our Twitter and Facebook page for that. There'll be events and details coming very soon. But roughly the third-ish week of July. Yeah. So book off all of your evenings. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you can find us, as we said, uh, wherever you get your podcasts, as well as on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, and I, I believe we have another website called patreon.com slash report yeah. that if you're interested in uh, giving us a buck or two uh, for thanks for the, the entertainment and the education that, we've, that we're hopefully providing, uh, we would very much appreciate it. It'd be really great if you can get in there before July 1st, because that's when you get charged and that's when we get paid. So become one of our first patrons, essentially, and let's try and set a first month record for canadian political podcasts yeah yes i think we're already pretty close there aren't that many also uh we would very much appreciate if you left five star reviews on our itunes uh store page no matter what store you're in no matter where you live a five star review helps others in your region find our podcast and you know it doesn't matter whether you live in vancouver or burnaby or the Surrey in England. Everyone needs to know about Vancouver politics. Five stars, please. And without further ado, I'm Matthew Naylor. I'm Patrick Meehan. I'm Ian Bushfield. This is the Canby Report. Good night.